This is Crosscut Reports. I'm Sarah Bernard. Today, I talk with Crosscut Communities reporter Maliha Sayed about the anniversary of a horrific tragedy. It traumatized uh, everybody, certainly the Chinese community. It's been 40 years since the Wami massacre, the deadliest mass shooting in Washington state's history, and one that had a devastating impact on many residents of Seattle's Chinatown International District. But instead of focusing on the tragedy itself, Maliha's reporting focuses on the coverage of it and the effect that coverage has had on the community over the years. In fact, some survivors have begged journalists not to cover these anniversaries anymore. So what does it mean to report on a topic that some of those involved would rather forget? What is the responsibility of a journalist from outside the community when reporting on something so sensitive? And when community members cover their own communities, what stories do they tell? I hear stuff. Okay. Can you hear me? Yeah. Can you hear me? (gasps) Yeah. This is so cool. All right. All right. Great. Well, um, go ahead and introduce yourself. Your name, your title, what you cover for Crosscut. Yep. My name is Maliha Sayed, and I'm the communities reporter at Crosscut, which I think is kind of a complicated beat, but the way that I would describe it is just covering communities that have maybe not been covered fairly in the past. And so... A lot of times that means covering communities of color, covering refugees, immigrants. It really, it runs the gamut, but I think that's the most succinct way to put it. So, yeah, on that note, I mean, we're here today to talk about some of the reporting you've done on your beat. Sunday marks four decades since Washington's deadliest mass shooting. February 2023 marks the 40th anniversary of the Wami massacre, which is the deadliest mass shooting in Washington state's history. When three men robbed and killed 13 people in the Wami Club, a closed-door gambling establishment in a basement storefront along Maynard Alley in the Louisa Hotel. I was curious, when you first set out to report on this, um, where where did you start? What were you looking for at first, or what did you think your approach was going to be? I don't think we had a specific idea of how we wanted to approach it, but I do think we wanted to kind of look at the communities today because it happened in the Chinatown International District, and that's just where a lot of communities of color immigrants have settled, especially Asian Americans. And so I don't know if we had exactly an idea of, like, what was going to be the outcome, but it was really just to look back at what this event meant to the community, uh, whatever that means, and and however they respond to that uh, question. Mm -hmm. And as you sort of began reporting, did anything surprise you? Yeah, I I think when I started, I was just trying to reach out to communities, because in my mind, it had been 40 years, so that felt like quite a lot of time had passed. And so it's just not something that would be too touchy as opposed to some of the more recent mass shootings that we've seen in the Mm -hmm. country. And Mm -hmm. so in my mind, it was just like, if I'll be able to approach people, they'll be willing to talk about it. And a coworker in the newsroom actually passed along a story that another publication did 20 years ago um, on the 20th anniversary. And a relative of one of the victims in that shooting had basically said, can we please stop talking about this topic? And Mm. I think that was the point where my approach to it changed because I realized Mm. this could still be sensitive to people. And as I continued to report it, I just found that some people didn't want to talk or some people 
would pass me along to other sources, I think, because they didn't feel like they were ready to or were interested or. Mm-hmm. And so then it, it changed, as you can tell, like the trajectory of the story and what it really became. It, I think, still feels like a pretty fresh wound for this really tight knit community. Um, yeah. So I think that was something that I also learned was just even if it's not an immediate trauma, it still is there and it's something that the community still maybe quietly dealing with, or if not, like, maybe they don't want to deal with it when a reporter asks them to. Yeah. I mean, at what point did did you sort of get the sense that maybe people didn't really want to talk to a journalist specifically? Yeah, I think, I don't remember the exact moment, but I do remember... I was really excited because I got Ron Chu to say, like, yeah, I'll speak with you. And he's he features prominently in the story because he is a community member, but he's also someone who was a reporter at that time or an editor at the International Examiner. And so he just toes a really fine line of, like, the media world and also that community. So when he said he wanted to talk to me, I was like, that's amazing. That's wonderful. We hop on the phone. I have all my questions ready. And he was like, wait, like, let's hold on for a second. Mm. And he wanted to get a sense of kind of who I was and also what I wanted to report. And I think in my mind, I was under the impression that we could just do one interview and it would cover everything. But he asked to meet with me in person and meet in the Chinatown International District and kind of let me get a sense of the place first before I even dive into it. Mm. So I think maybe that's something he would have done for any story, but especially for this one that's quite sensitive, I think he maybe just wanted to make sure that he knew what he was getting into and also that I knew what I was getting into and what I was going to be unearthing. Because this is just... Something that I think he has been really critical of, um, the way that reporters descended into the community. Mm-hmm. So I think for me to come back 40 years later, he maybe just wanted to make sure I wasn't going to do the same. Mm-hmm. And that's something that I feel like you really you know, featured in your reporting this time around is the reporting on this event at the time and over the years is that in many ways, it seems that the event was traumatic. But then the reporting on the event was traumatic for people. I mean, in fact, you know, re-traumatizing, you might say, over and over, just the way it was done. Is that your sense that you, you sort of learned first from Ron Chu and others? Yeah, I think I think he was the one who first kind of highlighted to me. I think both in person, but also just when I looked back at the reporting, and he, he was really openly critical in the International Examiner, which was uh, a local newspaper for that neighborhood. And he was pretty clear that the way that the media sort of swept in and communicated, from his perspective, communicated really awful tropes and stereotypes about Chinese Americans and Asian Americans. I think a lot of that I learned directly from Ron Chu, and I'm sure just in my reading on the event and how it was depicted. But yeah, I I think this is a community that was, you know, relatively settled, like they had their home base in the CID, but it's still and in in Beacon Hill, like in South Seattle in general, these are all people who have probably been there for a while, but 
there's still racial tensions in the country. They mm-hmm. themselves have experienced racism over the past century in, in Seattle. And so I think the media just really was unabashed in the way that it sort of splashed really traumatic headlines or really graphic images in their reporting. And um, and also just the way, from what I understand, the way that they went about approaching sources in really vulnerable positions, like going to funerals, trying to get people to speak mm-hmm. there. I think all of those things left a bad taste in people's mouths when they thought about the media treatment of this really awful tragedy. Mm-hmm. I think journalists probably have greater sensitivity now in approaching sources, but I think that alone can be traumatizing to keep rehashing an event. Mm-hmm. And then, I, yeah, I think just on top of it, having to sort of sit through stereotypes or narratives that this community is really secretive or really shadowy or um, they're running gambling dens and drug dens and mm-hmm. and they're nefarious. Like, I think uh, trying to navigate that, especially... Again, like these are narratives that don't draw too far back into the past. Like there are things that I think Chinese Americans and Asian Americans have sort of brushed up against for decades. And so to kind of have those reopened or sort sort of like be relabeled as that when they've already had this really traumatic thing happen, um, I think it just adds insult to injury. I wonder how you were thinking about this kind of thing as you're going in, you know, as a communities reporter into this kind of reporting, like, just curious, like, how do you think about reporting on sensitive topics, for example? Most of my stories, I think, or often I have to be really mindful of the perspective that someone else is coming from and, um, like, try to be sensitive and try to be respectful. But I think, I don't know, I think this story was a real test in that because I, It's like I think there's something really meta about reporting on how terrible the media was to this community and then to just say, so can we talk about it? (laughs) Can we we bring it up again? Exactly. Um, So I think as I continued to learn more and and talk to people, I realized I had to also be, I mean, I had to be patient and I had to be quite mindful of the fact that, A, people won't want to talk to me, so I should, you know, I have to look to other places, but B, if they do, it doesn't mean that um, they'll just want to hop on the phone and, and have a conversation. Like, they mm-hmm. might want to do what Ron Chu t- like, did, which was have me go down to the CID, sit down, off the record, just talk, mm-hmm. and then we do an interview. And so I think it was, for me, it, it was an extension of what I already do, which is try to be quite sensitive, but like times 100. I think it just mm-hmm. required me to be extra patient and remember that the story is just not that. I mean, it's important, but it it doesn't matter if it's just doing the same thing. Mm -hmm. And I just continue to re-traumatize these communities in a story about how communities were traumatized. But it does seem true in this case, at the very least, that the the bias of the mainstream media or the outside of this community media that apparently had a a negative impact on the neighborhood, too. Like, as if this one tragedy was sort of extrapolated to imply that the neighborhood was more unsafe than it was, for example. In the immediate aftermath, like the first week, there's just this swarm of people coming in, I think reporters who are 
trying to get the story, hear what happened. And then there's just this immediate drop off. And so suddenly the neighborhood's barren, like people don't want to patronize the businesses because they're scared. And and so sort of the financial and economic impacts of that, I don't know exactly what they are, but it sounds like anecdotally there was a real blow to that community and to the industries there and, and to the different business owners there just because people are scared. And part of that draws back, it seems like, to how the media portrayed that community, which was it's dangerous, it's scary. And one of the narratives was like, this is gang related. And it was later debunked. It wasn't gang related. But because people want to hold on to that idea, that permeated no matter mm-hmm. what police say, no matter what community members say, it seemed like if people in the public held on to that belief, that was all that mattered. And so that seemed to really guide the reticence to go into the CID. Hmm. Over the years, there's this kind of tourism of the of the site of the massacre that happens. And you write about how that is traumatizing for the community. And, and I mean, it seems to me that this is another way in which the neighborhood and the community continues to be othered. Like Ron Chu says, it's like a caricature. Mm-hmm. And you write, Wami wasn't just the name given to a horrific crime. Wami was a community space. Mm-hmm. And I just thought that was really an important thing to point out because I think it also speaks to a theme um, that you explored in your reporting, which is the way that the stories that we tell about a, a place or a community sort of can take over any other story. And, you know, the way that Wami now has this kind of tragedy that clings to it, even though it's it's actually the name of a community space that has all these other these other memories. Yeah. You know? Yeah, that was something, um, I think it was Dr. Connie So, who is a professor at the University of Washington, but she also grew up in Beacon Hill, and she's an immigrant from Hong Kong. And she was just talking about how, you know, like in her research, looking into how people portray Asian Americans in the media, it's like either the model minority trope or like gangster, opium dealer, like these really scandalous, nefarious, like villainous tropes and and she was like honestly people would just go to this gambling place but they would just hang out like it was just a place to spend time together and 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 it was a relaxing space and and I think in the same way that the CID got depicted as like this crime-ridden scary place that you just don't want to go to I think a lot of the pastimes like gambling all of these sort of the ways that people maybe recreated turned into like villainous recreational activities and Mm. and it just it's interesting to dive into this story and and sort of have those long-held narratives be debunked by the people that I talked to like even the gang-related trope of like what happened at the at WAMI, I think that was something that was really long held in media coverage of it. Like 40 years later, I think if you read some of the coverage, you could still, if you end up on the wrong link, get some weird impressions of what this was. And I think that's also probably what makes communities wary or 
frustrated with the media and how journalists treated them then and and now like i you mentioned the um sort of voyeurism i mean i think there's still tours i don't know if they're still to this day but not too long ago that would look at different parts of seattle and pass by wami and see um let mm. people get out and see what happened there and I mean, you can't go in but mm. you know yeah talk about this really horrific thing that is still in the the heart of the CID. Like people are still around, community members are still around, and and they see it happening too. So, but the neighborhood and the stories that this community does tell about itself and want told about itself is also kind of a big part of what I feel like you were saying in your work uh, this time as well. And and I understand that you went. You went on a little tour of the neighborhood, <laughs> not as a tourist of the Wami Massacre site at all, but as um, part of a, a tour that was being given for a class of University of Washington students. Yeah. Uh, can everyone hear me? Can you tell me about that? Yeah, it was it was interesting because I, you know, I met with Ranchu and then a few days later, or maybe a week later, he was like, I'm giving this tour to UW students. Welcome to the Chinatown International District. They were, I think, just trying to get a sense of kind of the changing structures of the CID and sort of how the CID is evolving. And Ron is a really good source because he grew up there and he's seen the changes. I'm a third generation Seattleite, uh, but the first generation of my family born here. My grandfather came here in 1911. He worked as a cannery worker worked as a dealer in a gambling establishment down here. It was kind of a casual, just chill tour through the neighborhood, but it was given by someone who has a lot of institutional knowledge and just firsthand perspectives. Um, that used to be a Asian movie theater. And it wasn't focused on tragedy and it wasn't focused on, you know, um, negativity. It was just like, here's how the community's changed and here's where it's going. Chinese musical club that was formed by some of the um, pre-World War II Chinese immigrants who wanted to uh, practice uh, traditional music with the Chinese instruments. So they gathered, when I was growing up working in the restaurant, they gathered late morning hours after breakfast. And at the end, you know, he just casually kind of walked past a building, and it's the Louisa Hotel, which is where Wami uh, previously was, I think in the basement. And so he just kind of stopped there, and I was like, is this it? And he said, yeah, and then we just kind of parted ways. And so it mm. it was just not the biggest part of the tour. It was actually not a factor at all. And I think mm. I would imagine that is refreshing to not have to regale people about this really terrible thing that happened.
Thanks for listening to Crosscut Reports. This episode was reported by Maliha Syed and produced by me, Sarah Bernard. Our story editor and executive producer is Mark Baumgarten. You can subscribe to Crosscut Reports wherever you listen. And whatever platform you're listening on, please review us. We'd love to know what you think of the show. Also, if you'd like to support the work we do at Crosscut, whether it's our lineup of podcasts, the live events we host every month, or the in-depth reporting we deliver every day, go to crosscut.com membership. In addition to supporting our journalism, members receive complete access to the on-demand programming of Seattle's PBS station, KCTS 9. For the latest political, environmental, and culture news from the Pacific Northwest, visit crosscut.com. That's also where you'll find a text version of the story we discussed today. Crosscut Reports is a product of Cascade Public Media. I'm Sarah Bernard. We'll be back soon with another episode.